Welcome to the Multiply Network Podcast, a podcast created to champion church multiplication, provide learning, and inspire new disciple-making communities across Canada. Hi there, welcome to episode number 13. My name is Paul Fraser, the host of the Multiply Network podcast. So glad you tuned in today. Excited to talk with a friend of mine, Robin Waller from Lift Church, talking about reaching millennials. What's it going to take? What do we need to do? He talks a little bit about their model of church planting. He's got a robust vision to see uh, Lift Churches on many different campuses. They've already are at number three. You're going to love the interview. He talks a little bit about bivocational ministry. I think personally that's a big part of our future as we look to multiply disciple-making communities and churches all across Canada. You're going to love what he has to say. He's got lots of great thoughts and the interview is coming up right now. Well, we're so happy to have Robin Waller, lead pastor of Lift Church here He's going to tell us a little bit about the story of Lift Church and how he connects with it. But Robin, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Paul. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story, your journey with Lift Church and how you ended up there and pastoring this great church? Mm -hmm. So the story goes back 13 years ago. Um, I was an undergraduate student studying nuclear engineering at McMaster University and uh, got connected in with. Uh, a church that was being planted that became Lyft's church. Uh, kind of served as a bit of the right-hand guy there for a couple years, about four years, um, and uh, fell in love with it, fell in love with the idea of planting churches in a university or college context. And um, it was awesome. We, uh, we really struggled in those early years for the first six years or so to figure out who we were, what we were doing. And so... Come come year six, we'd had a couple of leadership transitions. Um, I had been working as an engineer full time, and uh, the opportunity came up to kind of take over the reins of, uh, of leading Lyft. This would be about six years ago, and uh, I, I loved the church. I believed in it, but it was in it was in a bit of a tricky spot. And uh, so my wife and I kind of put up our hands. I said, "Yeah, I'm happy to to kind of take it over." I've my engineering work will kind of carry it from a financial standpoint. So um, for the subsequent five years, I actually worked bivocationally to lead Lyft. Um, and uh, it was really cool. It just started blossoming and growing. And uh, what started at Mac is now reproduced at uh, Brock University, Mohawk College. And uh, it's kind of crystallized into this, this really beautiful idea that we exist to see uh, – people, but really students uh, as a special emphasis made fully alive in the hope of Jesus by being the church on every college and university campus uh, that we can plant on as fast as we can plant, as fast as we can raise leaders and plant them, we're going to see churches planted. And so that's a very quick summary of 13 years of crazy, crazy history. But uh, really what we're seeing at Lyft right now is, uh, is a bit of a movement of discipleship happening where uh, leaders are being raised and then sent and then raised and then sent uh, to 
to go and tell their world about Jesus. And uh, as a result, we, we believe that we're going to see at least uh, a church planted every year for the next eight years at Lyft. But wow. that's, that's conservative in our estimate. We think we could easily do uh, two a year or even three a year come a couple more years from now. So. Yeah, and that's the idea of that multiplication. You know, as yeah. as you plant healthy churches, they'll they'll reproduce, and yeah, so it won't all have to come from McMaster. Uh, yeah, yeah. Quick story on that: our um, we're we're going to be planting a site uh, at Guelph University uh, next year, and the leader that's coming out of that isn't coming out of a McMaster site, which is the original. He's actually coming out of our Brock site, number two. Um, and uh, there's leaders being developed at all the sites for future plans right yeah. now as we speak. So so great. I just want to drill down a little bit on the on something you said because um bivocational I think is going to be a big part of our future. I know today we're going to be talking about reaching millennials and we're going to dive into that. But any comments on the bivocational planting, any thoughts, helpful tips that you found uh that maybe other bivocational planters could uh, take from your experience? Yeah, I would I would encourage anyone that's that's bivocational to to you're not a second rate pastor, <laughs> you're not a second rate leader. You you're the future. Um, I think most of our team, if not all of our team, uh, has or currently works bivocationally. Wow. In fact, uh, the way we think about it internally at Lyft is uh, we don't delineate between staff and non staff. Uh, if you were to ask me, I would say we probably have fifty bivocational staff at Lyft if not more. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now, they're not actually on staff. Uh, I'm doing air quotes here for those of you listening. <laughs> um, they're, uh, we've just tried to, to eradicate the distinction between professional uh, clergy and laity. We've just said that that's a non-biblical uh, distinction. Uh, everyone is called to ministry. Everyone's uh, sent as an ambassador into this world. So um, if you're sitting in that place of being bivocational and wrestling with Am I doing it right? I would say yes, and we need more of that, and uh, we need to we need to, we need to celebrate that uh, as a broader church family. Those that are willing to to walk that road, and uh, it's tough, it's hard, it's sacrificial, but uh, it's so worth it. Such a such a great thought there about bivocational in the future, and and uh, thanks for thanks for just diving in a little bit on there. I know it wasn't in the script, but Great thoughts. And that, that idea of second-rate leaders and being bivocational, totally, totally agree with you. It's been a while since I've been on the university campuses. I'm not going to tell you how long, but it's been a while and uh, since I graduated. Uh, and maybe some other people out there listening to the podcast, they go, man, that seems like a lifetime ago. For those that don't know, what are university campuses and colleges like for students? pressures schedules what's their culture like what like take us through you're living that every day what's it like i think in some ways it's the same uh as it's always been and in some ways it's very different um i think the the same piece would be that you know it's still school um school's still happening and uh kind of that classic picture of some of the party uh dimension of post secondary life is still obviously a big part of our campuses but I think there's some big differences right now. Uh, number one, I would say that the the pressure to perform is a lot higher. Um, there, the pressure to get in, the average 
the entrance averages for high school students coming out is a lot higher. Right. So you've got way higher pressure to perform across the board, um, which in turn creates massive mental health problems. Uh, we have a major mental health crisis on our universities. A um, couple stats to throw at you. 65% of the 2 million uh, post-secondary students in Canada are suffering from overwhelming anxiety. 13% have seriously considered suicide. 69% or something like that are regularly abusing alcohol. Uh, I mean, the situation's pretty, pretty challenging and uh, pretty intense. One of the other major factors that's probably a little bit different is the diversity. Um, we are seeing way, way, way more diversity on our campuses. Uh, the quantity of international students uh, proportionate uh, as a proportion of the, the enrollment is way higher than it was in the past. Um, I think there's well over 300,000 international students in Canada right now studying on one of our post-secondary campuses. Uh, our, at our Mohawk College campus, for example, 30% of that campus is our international students. So that's about six or 7,000 students, uh, almost all of them from India. Uh, so that is a major difference in the, the makeup of, okay, well, how do you design a church to reach that, that demographic? Um, but it's also very different. Guelph University is only 3% international students. So there's a lot of diversity in that, but uh, every campus kind of has this like fast churn of, of all these cultures and people and backgrounds. And as a result requires that we really contextualize the gospel for it in a unique way. Yeah. Um, so if you kind of take all that together, you've got a lot of diversity, a lot of people from all over the world, uh, combined with a ton of pressure to perform, combined with all the, the old stuff of partying, drugs, that kind of thing. Uh, it's a pretty dynamic place. But one myth that I would almost like to correct is that it's a place that's hostile to the gospel. Mm. Uh, in the last number of years, uh, and I've kind of been around university campuses for the last 13 years or so, uh, I've observed a bit of a shift. Uh, I think in the last especially six, five, six years, there's been a shift where we've seen our campuses become increasingly secularized. Mm -hmm. um, but in a way, that's one of the biggest wins that we've had as a church, mm -hmm. because it means that the people on our campus have no idea who Jesus is, mm -hmm. which means they're open. Um, the fact that our campuses are so secular now means that they have no opposition to the gospel. Okay. Uh, and that's very surprising to people. Uh, I think people here at campuses are secular. That must mean they're opposed to the gospel, but they're so secular that they have no reason to be opposed to the gospel. Right. And so what we're finding is that the ground is, is really, really ready. Um, when you start opening up gospel conversations with people, they respond. Yeah. Um, they're hungry. They're searching. You take that, um, that desire for uh, sort of a, some answers to those mental health problems, uh, mm -hmm. that pressure to perform, and then you bring some gospel life into that. It's transformative. So um, that's a bit, a little bit of what's opposite of what we hear. Books, yeah. you know, books we're reading about becoming, you know, post-Christian. They aren't hostile, but post-truth is hostile. You sure. know, any truth-based ideology, post-truth mindset. And typically, universities are kind of the front edge of that 
secular, post-truth, you know, if we're moving that way, which it seems like we are. But you're saying that, hey, at this point, they're open to hear the story of Christ. Post-truth, like a lot of the dialogue around post-truth is not all bad because it means that people are also open to the idea of, well, tell me about what you believe. Right. Um, Post-truth kind of is an environment on our campuses where people are very open to hearing what other people believe. Yeah. Um, But it's also, uh, I think, a little bit more nuanced than that because you have massive populations of international students, largely from other faith base. Uh, other faith systems, Hinduism, Islam, that kind of thing. Uh, there's a a real kind of interaction there of people that believe all kinds of different things, and as a result, a real openness to them. Yeah. Um, so it's not unusual for us at all as a church to see um, people from all kinds of faith systems just walk into our services and engage with what we're doing. Um, just last Two days ago, we had uh, somebody from a Hindu background give his life to Jesus. Wow. Um, just walked in and said, yeah. Uh, he had been kind of processing with us for a number of months and said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. And so I, I think the situation is much more optimistic than I think the Good. picture that we often assume. Yeah. I think uh, some of the reading you get, it's so doomsday, you know, on some of those things. And to hear someone who's actually on, you know, ground level on campus. Uh, I think that's exciting. So what, what do you think makes Lyft Church uh, so effective at the college and university campus? What are, what are some of the things you're doing that you're seeing some effectiveness? I think there's, there's a few things that uh, we've sort of cracked, if you will. Um, the first is that we believe that, that presence is absolutely essential. Um, if if we're going to actually reach people in the context of university, we have to get inside the walls um, and we have to be committed to being inside the walls. So we've just put up our hand and said, we're going to plant churches inside the walls of the university. We're going to uh, put roots down there. We're going to be committed to doing it and we're not going to leave um, ever. Like we're, we're never going to drift off from the campus. And uh, that that has some consequences with it, but it also opens up a lot of opportunity for us. And so I think the first piece is a commitment to the campus uh, as a first priority. Uh, And in many cases, uh, we would go so far as in in some ways to say only priority. Uh, I think the second piece is we've uh, we've learned how to do that in a way that wins trust and is winsome. Um, We don't show up with our, our battleship and say, hey, we're here to save the day and aren't we awesome? And we roll up with our program. We work very hard to earn trust. Um, we take a long time. Our planting process is slow. Uh, we listen, we learn, we contextualize, we understand. Um, and what that means is by the time we're finally running services, uh, the administration, the campus body, the students' unions, they have all, they're all on side and appreciate what we're doing because they understand that we're there to add value to the campus. We're there to um, sort of increase the overall uh, environment, uh, health of the overall environment of the campus. So they're excited that we're there, um, typically. And uh, I think the the other piece is that because it's all we do, uh, we've structured our entire church to be optimized for reaching that environment. 
Um, I'll give you an example. We, a lot of people will often say to me, Robin, it, it must be really tough to lead a church that had such high turnover. Uh, we're turning our congregation over pretty much every four years. Mm-hmm. Some people stay, but it, there's a lot of churn. For us, that's our biggest win. Uh, we think it's our biggest strength. Um, but we've had to design and build leadership systems, discipleship systems that uh, are optimized for train and send, train and send, uh, and high turnover, high transients. And we think that that's actually a great environment to build a, a thriving church. But it meant that we had to build the whole thing to support it. Yeah, opposed to it being an obstacle, it became an opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you got to look at it that way. Um, when we planted uh, City Center Church on the U of A campus, and we weren't, you know, designed to be a campus church, but we wanted to be within walking distance of a campus. Uh, yeah, we saw lots of turnover, but we saw that as a great opportunity to send people mm-hmm. to to do different things. And we became a church that planted other churches and still going today and, and all of those things. Um, and so we learned some things about, uh, you know, at that time, millennials was a big, was a big conversation starter. How are we going to reach millennials? Now we're drifting. A lot of the students coming to university are Gen Z, um, but you're still spending, uh, you know, still got the tail end of the millennials there. Um, What are you learning about reaching millennials for the gospel? And now maybe if you want to touch on Gen Z, if there's a difference or if you're starting to see, you could, uh, yeah, you know, enlighten us on what you're noticing there. Yeah, I think, uh, Millennials and Gen Z, they're very similar. Uh, I think Gen Z, we're just pushing some of the ideas we learned with millennials further. Um, but I think there's a few things that I would highlight. Um, the first is that we are like really, really simple with our message. Um, we preach the gospel. Um, we have one message and we preach it every week. Without fail, we communicate the gospel. Um, and what I mean by that is we are unashamed and unafraid to communicate, hey, we are sinners in need of a savior. Um, and if you come to any lift service at any site, you're going to be engaged with some pretty hard-hitting uh, gospel messages, right. not just in our preaching, but in the structure of the whole church. Um, we are about as far from sort of seeker-friendly as you could get, Um Partly because I think that millennials are looking for just just give it to, millennials ng just give it to me straight, um, don't water it down, don't give it to me gentle, just just hit me in the face, tell me how it is, and I'll decide what I think about it. Mm. Um, and so uh, we we just lead with with the full the, everything we've got. Um, we don't hold back, we don't water it down, we don't try and make it more palatable. Um, just say, hey, this is this is what scripture says. Um, I think, uh, so it's kind of starting there, there's a couple other pieces I would layer on that. Uh, the second is that we have, one of the things that millennials and Gen Z have really grown up in is a high experience culture. So uh, where experience uh, is king. Everything is about the experience. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of looked at that and said, well, well we can't compete. Um, in terms of experience, there's just no way that I can up the ante week in and week out and compete on a value proposition of experiences 
Um, To be honest, the university does a way better job. But we can compete in a much deeper value proposition than experience, which is purpose. Mm. And so what we've kind of turned around and said, instead of trying to give you experiences that are highly attractional, we're going to set a challenge bar incredibly high. We're going to call you to a standard of living that is going to blow your mind and challenge you, call you way more than anybody else. Um, you know, kind of taking some a page out of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically say to our, our students, hey, welcome. Welcome to church. Glad you're here. Um, if you're going to be a Jesus follower, he's going to call you to come and die. So come and die um, and build your life to serve him. And so really, really high bar of challenge, high bar uh, of invitation. Um, And what that means is that our students, when they get that, they go, holy moly, you're inviting us to something really, really profound. Mm -hmm. Uh, This isn't this isn't a experience that I'm going to have for a moment, go home and be alone. This is an invitation to a life of mission. I don't think anybody else is offering that. Um, And I think that's what Jesus calls all of us to, but as, uh, as a church that's committed to reaching largely millennials and Gen Z, we've just, we've put that on the ceiling, that bar as high as we can set it and said, you guys can jump over it. You can, you can actually step into this, this life of mission. Wow. Uh, and I think the third thing I would say is that we have um, abandoned any kind of what I would call addition oriented thinking and uh, adopted uh, only a multiplication-oriented thinking. Well, you're going to get a big amen. Going to get a big amen from me on that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's good. That's my favorite math <laughs> sign. Is the multiplication sign? Love yeah, it. That's awesome. Yeah. Unpack that for me. So, I, I think uh, as churches, we're very used to building addition-oriented pretty much everything. Um, where there's a few key people that contain that hold a large amount of influence. And it's come listen to me, uh, come come to the service, come hear from the stage, come to come bring your friends to church so that they can hear about Jesus. And we basically said that we actually think that's unbiblical. Uh, not to say that services and 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 worship and, and don't get me wrong, um, but that when we start disempowering the saints and start disempowering people from actually being ambassadors for the kingdom themselves. Yeah, uh, we have moved into addition thinking instead of multiplication thinking. Um, when we start empowering people to actually tell people about Jesus, who in turn tell people about Jesus, who in turn tell people about Jesus, the potential kingdom impact is way higher. The health of leadership in the church is way higher. The growth of the church is slower initially. It takes longer to get this off the ground, but by the time and if you give it time you end up with a way, way bigger movement. Um, It's slower because it means you actually have to disciple people and train them to do the hard work of evangelism, introducing people to Jesus, and in turn replicating that again. Uh, And I think as a church, what we've done is we've just said, that's all we're going to do. We've, uh, if you come to Lyft, we don't run a lot of events. We don't have a lot of things that we're saying, hey, come to. Everything that we do is built around how do we mobilize our people to be missional in their world? 
Yeah. Um, and we hold them very, very accountable to that. Yeah. So it's not just an idea. There's we we actually we measure it, we test it, we see are we actually multiplying? The only way into leadership at Lyft is to multiply your way into leadership. Um, and we expect that of a first year. Um, so a first year shows up at Lyft, they're 17, 18 years old. Um, if they do their job right, they should be leading uh, at least 50 or 60 people by their third year uh, under their care. That should have kind of multiplied underneath them. Um, our best, what we call multipliers, uh, can do that in six months. Um, so we have first years leading groups um, or like tiered structures in the many, many dozens of people. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, and, and that's what we mean when we say a discipleship movement at Lyft Church. It's not a movement of, hey, come listen to Robin Waller. It's be empowered to in turn empower others. Um, wow. We need, we need to, we need to multiply that. <laughs> a, that that's that's very biblical and and well said um not easy to do i i can't remember who told me this but they quoted it from someone and uh, one of my bible college professors said to me once the art of originality is simply forgetting where you got it from so, <laughs> so i'm going to say this we underestimate we overestimate what what could be done in a year and mm-hmm. underestimate what could be done in 10 yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that one, I think I screwed up the quote, but the point is, is that we think that, you know, let's, let's get that first year and try to provide and, and grow and build a crowd and all that. Um, but I like your approach, you know, that start slow, build deep, multiply, uh, cause the exponential math works way better in your favor if you're building that. And in fact, we were just at a, church planting conference and they said the new number you need to be counting is not the crowd but your core mm-hmm. does your core grow every year you know those core leaders those core disciples cuz if that core grows your crowd will grow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so one of the one of the things we do when we're when we're planting sites is um we don't actually allow them to move uh to hosting services until we've seen consistent multiplication uh, before they've even had services. Good. So we start with a, a small, we call them simple churches, uh, and that needs to multiply and then multiply again yeah. before they get the green light for services so that in the DNA of each new location is multiplication. And yeah. every person as they're integrated in is kind of invited into this multiplying process. Yeah. Um, so one of the, the key metrics we're measuring every week at Lyft is uh, how many people were able to multiply themselves into new places, new simple churches, new leaders. Um, and, uh, and can we, can we track that through the system? Um, it's probably our number one, most important metric more than attendance or any of that. Yeah, no, that's great. So existing churches, uh, you know, are out there trying to reach millennials. Uh, you're on campus, you're totally surrounded by them. Um, why don't you why don't you give us some thoughts and advice you know these these millennials will age out after four years or six years or whatever, and they're going to local churches. Mm-hmm. What do churches need to be doing to welcome them to engage them? I'll leave that with you. What are your thoughts so I think 
the first thing I would say is put them to work. Um, and I don't mean put them to work doing a simple like tasks. I mean, get them into leadership as quickly as you can. Um, and that is going to be risky. Um, it means it's probably going to make your leadership teams uncomfortable. Uh, it's probably going to feel like we have people that are, quote, unqualified uh, at the table. But uh, again, I had that in air quotes, um, un that unqualified. Uh, I think when, when I look at sort of the Jesus model of, of working with his disciples, he would uh, kind of receive them. He did a little bit of work with them, and then he would send them out. And they would send it and he gave them this mandate to go and and tell people about the kingdom uh the kingdom of God. I think that if if we're gonna if if a church is gonna be receiving millennials, especially if they've been taught to think multiplication and they've been taught to to think missional with their life, then get, we we have to get them into leadership quickly. Mm -hmm. um, they're gonna get really bored really fast otherwise. Um, I would say it's futile to try to entertain them. Um, don't play the entertainment game. Uh, I'm going to say something that might be even controversial, Paul, if this gets you in trouble, I apologize, but I think we've got to shift our thinking on young adults. Um, I think a lot of churches receive um, kind of the Gen Z millennials and we, we kind of put them in a young adult category. I think we need to dissolve that category uh, altogether and just say, you're now an adult, behave like an adult, live like an adult and step into leadership. Um, this delay, the delayed adolescence doesn't help anyone and I think ends up hurting the church because it, it puts our, what could be our best, most pioneering, vibrant, uh, multiplication-oriented leaders, and it limits their potential. Um, so let's, let's, let's get them mobilized for the kingdom. Uh, and yeah, I, do I admit love that. I love that. <laughs> okay. No, I love it. I, I, think, uh, I think we need to be thinking that way for sure. Um, and whether it, you know, I, you know, we could, we could drill down in the weeds as it relates to programming for that or for sure, whatever. But the idea is your adults, um, cause I think one of the things that, that I'm discovering as a parent of now just tail end millennials and now starting Gen Z, um, is that Gen X parents knock down every obstacle they could for their kids. And so now uh, they don't know necessarily how to, you know, how to get through failure, difficulty, learning how to persevere because mom and dad have just done a great job of, of just really being there for them and working hard. Now, of course, this is just big, broad statements, but there's books coming out of on this. There's mm -hmm. universities that are going, these high performing athletes, uh, have a failure and it just immediately sends them in a tailspin because they've never experienced failure before in this idea of growing up kids uh, and you know these now young adults to adults that's a big deal and it's something that needs to be uh i don't know addressed or talked about uh and we've got to walk with these like when you said to me i think the number was 65% of uh of students, university students are struggling with, did you say high anxiety or just overwhelming anxiety, overwhelming anxiety? Yeah. Well, that we've got to, we've got to have a response as a church to come alongside them, encourage them, say, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. We're going to help you. But this is part of growing. 
And I think that's the key is that the temptation is to, uh, to coddle somebody that's feeling overwhelmed. Um, but in our experience, that does not help. Mm. Um, what, what we've done as a church is we allow and we encourage uh, our students to fail and to fail hard. Uh, and they're, they're in, they're in you know, my office or part of our team often in tears and you know we we encourage them we pray for them but we don't i'm like you failed welcome to life uh you're gonna be okay um now get back up on your feet and get back out there Mm -hmm. and uh they don't like it initially but they come back a couple weeks later and say thank you yeah i feel um, their, their confidence increases because now that they have failed they know that they can survive failure yeah. And so I think as church leaders, we have a responsibility to to create an environment in which they not only can fail, that they likely will fail, mm-hmm. and allow our leadership teams to be very tolerant to that that failure, so mm-hmm. that what we get is the moments where they don't fail and they're brilliant. Yep. Um, really drawn out of them. And and just that grit, that tenacity gets built into them. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, I love that. Uh, what what do we need to do, you know, just before we get to our final uh, rapid fire questions round? Last question for you. Uh, what do you think we as a PAOC need to do, like as an organization, so think 30,000 feet, to be adjusting and uh, our methods are, well, I won't put words in your mouth. What do we need to be doing to reach millennials as a PAOC? I think uh, a few things I would kind of say to that. Firstly, I think the PAOC as a, as a broad family has a real strength um, in experiences and creating experiential events. And I think we don't need to throw that out altogether, but I do think that we need to go deep on um, on empowered discipleship. We need to really, really ask the question, how do we equip people to be multiplying disciples? Yeah. Um, if we can take our strength as a, as a kind of a broad family in creating experiences that can be catalytic, but then anchor it in a, in a base, a strong base of multiplying discipleship that's empowered. Uh, I think that would be absolutely transformative. Yep. And so um, I think that would be sort of my first uh, big thing. I think the second thing is I think we've got to get um, millennials and younger into key leadership positions. Uh, and make sort of decisive, quick moves uh, at a high level to empower that voice at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I think nat- naturally movements uh, age as they get older, uh, as wisdom is is gained. But the challenge is, is that that limits the ability to pioneer. Uh, and so I would uh, I would say let's let's get some voices at the table that are young, um, that are are passionate, that have some creativity. And uh, and allow them to fail in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so those would be probably my two my two big ones on that. Oh, oh, um, great thoughts, and you, that would be. Oh, you got more? I got one last one. Okay, um, which is uh, I think let's just keep the gospel front and center. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the let, let, let's anchor and communicate the gospel as clearly as we can. We do not need to water the message down. Um, not that we have, and that's not a reactive thing so much as it is an affirming thing. Yep. Um, I think let's let's keep communicating and pointing people 
to the wholeness of the gospel uh, as revealed in, in, in the scriptures. Yeah, great thought. And it's great to hear that from a younger leader. Because there would be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, leaders out there who are older than you that would go, yes, more <laughs> gospel, more gospel. I think it was Mark Twain says that the best storyteller wins the generation. And key to a great storyteller is having a great story. And mm-hmm. we've got the best one out there. So thanks mm-hmm. for reminding of us uh, of that. And just great insights. And thanks for uh, doing what you're doing with Lyft. We're so happy to be partnering with you and and jumping in where we can. And I know your district in Western Ontario is just really excited about the, some of the things you're doing. So keep up the good work, Robin. We're praying for you. And uh, we're just believing that you're going to do something incredible. We love your vision. So uh, keep going. All right. Rapid fire question. You don't know what the questions are. So you just get to shoot from the hip here. Favorite book you've read in the last 12 months? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Gaining by Losing. Gaining by by Losing. Okay. J.D. Greer. Great. Uh, What do you want to shoot for hours per sleep per night? Uh, Seven. Seven's good for you. Okay. Do you, did you have a favorite pet growing up and what was it? Uh, I had this Bouvier dog growing up and he was awesome. A little boy in South Africa. It was awesome. Okay. Uh, favorite book of the Bible? Uh, oh man. Uh, I'm going to go second Corinthians today. Today? Uh, today. Uh, but it'll change tomorrow. It's all your favorite book, right? You can't. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you were to have, if someone could buy you a beverage that you would just love, what would that be? Coffee every time. Every time? Like every. what kind? No specialty coffee? No straight up that? Any kind of coffee from any kind of shop. Okay. Favorite podcast? I'm not really a podcast guy. No? What are no. you? Uh, I'm an audiobooks guy. I love audiobooks. Okay. So. Your least favorite subject to learn about? Knitting, <laughs> I love learning, so uh, I feel like that. Uh, you can you have a least? You just offended a ton of knitters out there. Like, you uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> we're gonna get some. It's gonna get some firm emails. Just tease it. Uh, give us your favorite leisure activity. So, when you have a free minute or two, what are you doing? Mountain biking. Mountain biking. And last question: uh, most influential leaders in your life. Give us maybe two or three. Uh, I had this incredible youth pastor growing up. Uh, her name is Christoski. Um, she was like the anti-youth pastor. Um, I think she taught me what it means to empower people. Uh, she'd be one of them. Uh, the, um, I have a buddy, uh, out in, uh, sort of a collection of churches, very similar to Lyft, one in California, one in, uh, Washington state that are very, encouraging to us that kind of helps show that we're what we're doing isn't insane so the guy named ed kang and keith weezer uh and then uh really grateful to some of uh the family in the paoc dave slater who took me under their wing under his wing when i was just a punk 17 year old kid and uh let me kind of see the inside of the plant in the churches yeah cool. there'd be a few just off off the cuff yeah well thanks robin for jumping on the podcast day really appreciate it yeah my pleasure thanks for having me paul